0: we actually are going to conclude our series on the church covenant. This is installment number nine. And we have hopefully along the way stressed the importance of why this particular subject matters. It is dear to God. And if we would be following him or acquainted at all with the heart of God, then it must be dear to us. The things that matter to God simply must matter to us. The things that he is passionate for. Must become our passions if we really are in love with him and pursuing him and following him and being affected by him, and so the church is is such the means of god 's grace upon earth that who we are going to be for the glory of god is is no small subject; it is such an important matter. Uh, this final message uh, it really has two elements to it: one is to conclude the The dynamic we looked at last week about understanding God having an economy. Last week we looked at God's economy of prayer. This week we will look at God's economy of giving. And we said last week, God having an economy just kind of means that God has revealed a way that He does things. God gets His will, His product, if you will, from one location in the warehouse, the storehouse of grace into the lives of men, into the, the pages of human history, and he distributes it there somehow. You know, if you will, there are vehicles parked and there are transportation routes that God uses and he has a means of accomplishing what he desires to accomplish. And, and we said one of the things last week, and I want to highlight this element again this week, one of our points of what I would describe as blurry theology is when we we start thinking that because god is infinite he he must have many ways i mean he may be doing this particular way as we know it but he's got to have a whole bunch of ways he's infinite and plus he's sovereign and he's got a bunch of ways and in the end he will accomplish it anyway so really what does it matter what we do in the realm of prayer and today in the realm of giving you know do these things really matter in the christian life at the end of time people's lives will they really have been affected whether we prayed or not Will the outcome of the kingdom of God really be any different whether you and I lift a voice in prayer or not? Well, that same track of thought is also true in the realm of giving. Now, whether we give or not, whether we spend finances on the kingdom of God or not, will it really matter in the end? I mean, God is infinite. Certainly, He can do things differently than by receiving money from us or as though he needed anything. Well, you know, this is not a matter of God's need. God having an economy doesn't highlight that God is needy. It highlights that God has chosen in his wisdom and in who he is to show forth his glory in a particular way. And he has an economy about how he will do that. And as we're going to look today and study giving, uh, we're going to find out God has an economy concerning his people giving into what he does and so in your outline there there's a number of pages we're going to get to the end here and and i wanted you to have a copy of the rough draft of what the church covenant will for the most part look like we're still tweaking that still talking to the extended leadership team and getting some input and i'll explain some of that as we get farther into the message but what is god's economy of giving and what my intention is today is to, to move us quickly through what I think is all over the Bible to make sure we haven't missed the forest for the trees. When we start having a discussion about the nuances of giving, there are some generalities that are in Scripture about giving that should frame all of our reference point. And then from there, we'll seek to answer specifics as we apply things. But here's an interesting thought, and it touches our starting point here. John Piper shares this thought. He says, Last year... This is a number of years ago, actually. Christianity Today carried an article about young adults and financial giving. Here are several sentences that make me concerned about biblical finances for the wider Christian church. James Williams of the Church of God World Service said, Our people, 45 years old and younger, have grown up mesmerized by materialism. There's tremendous pressure on families to spend, spend, and spend. Then he adds, I've heard that the generation that believed in the tradition of tithing is in three places. Retirement homes, nursing homes, or cemeteries. In other words, most baby boomers and baby busters haven't embraced tithing. Now, this is an insightful article because it highlights a practice that's in the the audience of the church as it exists on planet earth but i also thought it was rather interesting about the word choices that are in this article to examine the topic of giving this little phrase i've heard that the generation that believed in the tradition of tithing is tithing a tradition where did this idea come from you see what it raises it raises a good good question for us here Where'd this whole idea about anybody giving anything come from? I mean, all of us are kind of okay with that idea. It's normal, accepted practice. Churches receive offerings. Nobody challenges that. Well, let's just challenge it. Should you be giving anything? And if you should give something, how much should you give? And how often should you give? And where would you get the ideas about how you give? Are they just traditions? Do we just look back through recent church history and say, you know, over the last 20 to 30 to 40 years, this is how people have given, so that's how I'll give. Or do we look back over the last 200 years and say, well, this is how people have given, so that's how I'll give. Or do we just invent our own? You know, we're okay with the whole idea of giving. And, you know, I've created a plan, and here's what I give, and we can explain our own invention. Or do we have convictions that are derived from the scriptures? And and really, that question is a much bigger question than just the category of giving. That question, and I kind of asked it in an odd way, because you may not be familiar with these terms, but when we come to the Bible, we just come to the Bible, and if you will, we, we press the play button. On the topic of giving in the Bible. And just let the Bible start to speak to us. What does it say? And that is a good question in terms of the practice of any category of our lives. When we come to a category in our life. Whether it's how we spend our money. How we spend our time. What we believe about salvation. What we believe about moral behavior. How we dress. How we talk. What we say is good or bad. Any of those issues, all are approached the same way. Do we come to the Bible and press the play button and then step back and let it speak to us and then form our position on that issue? That would be an exegetical approach to living the Christian life. Exegetical means to let the Scripture say what it says, which is different than eisegetical. When one comes to the Bible eisegetically, one comes and tries to get the scriptures to say something. Now, the, the reality is all of us are professional eisegetes. We already have our minds made up in a lot of categories. We have opinions. We have biases. Some of those biases come because we think that's, that's what ought to be happening. We just have a conviction. Where do we get that from? Well, it's just what I've always believed. It's what my mom and them did. It's just how we practiced walking this thing out or it may be that sometimes we form our position our bias because we're just we're comfortable with the boundaries being the way we have created them this is what i'm comfortable with living my life this way um defining my responsibilities this way and and you know i get around those people who kind of they think it ought to be like this and i don't, man, i'm just not comfortable with that and and usually and you'll notice this quite often what we'll do is we'll end up creating really nasty labels for those folks legalists or something like that you know, oh, you know that's such legalism now the, the challenge for us is are we coming to the bible and imposing our view on the bible and trying to make it say what we want it to say or do we just come to the bible in any subject and today we're talking about biblical giving and just press the play button back away and let it start to speak to us and see what it says and then be faithful and humble enough to say, you know, I'm, I'm not here as an individual before God to resist what God wants. If I wanted to do that, I wouldn't be a Christian. I'm here because I want to follow him. I'm here because I believe he has wisdom and his truth will benefit my life like nothing else could. So rather than trying to, to make this thing something that I think I'd like, that was, that's how we all lived before we knew Christ. That's how I lived. I tried to twist every form of morality to justify what I could do. But when I came to Christ, hopefully what I found in God was God. God, you're God. You have the first and last say on all the issues pertaining to life. And you've spoken about everything that's necessary for life and godliness here. And and I want to just press the play button back away and just see what you say. And so that's what I'd like for us to do here. And We're going to try and do it quickly to take a broad sweeping look at this issue of biblical giving in the Bible. When we come to the Bible, what do we find here? Well, we're going to find two major categories of activity. One's going to be called tithing. The word actually means a tenth. It is a tenth of something. Tithing is one, and the other is offerings. And those would be the major categories of giving. And pretty much all financial giving will fall underneath one of those umbrellas let's look first quickly at tithing you first find tithing as a practice of the patriarchs you're going to go back oh you know over 1800 years before christ to abraham and find in this passage in genesis chapter 14 there's a a war that's being fought in the valley here and and we're going to find abraham encountering a priest named melchizedek listen to this passage in verse 18 He says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Abraham has won this incredible battle, and he's gathered all the spoils from the battle. So, if you will, Income has come into Abram's life. He now has things that he didn't have just moments ago, but they're his. And the passage says, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this Melchizedek was priest of God. And God, notice the title of God here, becomes very significant for understanding the tithe. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. So this man, Melchizedek, is a a representative of God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram receives all this into his life, and he turns back and immediately gives a tenth of it back to God. Now, what's very, very significant about this passage, the one right after it in Genesis 28, is that this is over 400 years before Moses, before the law at Sinai is given. Now I highlight that because it becomes very significant in understanding the whole idea of where this tithe thing come from. How do, how do we create this pattern of ten percent because what I have heard for many years in the, in the body of Christ, usually from people who want to figure out a way not to give as much, is to associate the tithe with the Old Testament law and you actually end up with on two theological boulders and crash your ship against two things you shouldn't be trying to avoid anyway. One is to treat the law in a way that the Old Testament and the New Testament do not treat the law. The, the Old Testament... I don't have time to run off on this. Why am I doing this? Um, <laughs> the Old Testament is not God's experiment that went bad. That's not what the Old, the old Covenant... It is not God saying, okay, look, I know, I, I know I'm only going to do this for a little while. The new covenant is really what it's all about. Jesus is it. But i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this one based on works just so everybody can screw it up. And then I'll give them the new covenant later. The covenant in the old covenant actually grows out of God's covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham first. And it is a covenant of faith. That looks to God's provision to make all this stuff come true. And it's the same pattern of the new covenant. Out of Abraham's covenant grows a specific people. The people of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes a nation of Israel. God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. It is not something that God intended that "This this is a horrible deal. This has got terrible ideas in it. And later on, the New Covenant is going to allow you to back and do this to the Old Covenant. You know, I was so glad it was the dumbest thing, wasn't it? You know, don't put me under that, like we're all allergic to it. It is the misuse of the Old Covenant that's a problem. It is not the Old Covenant that's a problem. It's the misuse of it that's the problem. But somehow in this give the Old Covenant a black eye, if we can just stick tithing into that thing here, we can give it a black eye too. Now I want to rescue us from that because I'm just pressing the play button here and I don't find the tithe originates in the covenant at Mount Sinai. Everybody with me on that? Abraham who would receive from God just like you and I. Abraham is in the most similar covenant in the scriptures to the one we're in. He is the father of faith. They are not all children of his if they are not in faith in God. So that's why Jesus said, you know, like we raise up children from Abraham out of these rocks. It's the belief, those who have faith in the God who provides righteousness. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. righteousness. Welcome to the new covenant. That's true for us, right? So in that covenant, these patriarchs gave to God a tenth. Look at Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. So not too many years here after. You're still a few hundred years before the Old Covenant, uh, the covenant at Sinai is given. Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob, this is where Jacob has settled the evening at Bethel, and he has seen the angels descending up and down a ladder from heaven. Remember this exchange? And he, he realizes God was in this place. And he says in verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Again, 300 years before the covenant at Sinai is given. Somehow, and the Bible doesn't explain this, but if we just press the play button, it tells us. Somehow, these guys knew when you give to God, you give a tenth. Now, I I can't conclude anything different than that. I can abandon that idea and come up with my own. Or I can say, I see a pattern here in Scripture that honors God. And what's interesting in this language here is in Genesis 14, you have God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And then in Jacob's situation, he says, if God will give me, provide for me. So there's an honoring. I believe the tithe honors the possessor of heaven and earth and the one who provides into our life. I think that's the nature of the tithe. It is to always look back to God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. There's a great definition there in your outline, the law at Mount Sinai <clears throat> Unger says that the tithe is the tenth of all produce, flocks, and cattle was declared to be sacred to Jehovah by way, so to speak, of rent to him who was, strictly speaking, the owner of the land and in return for the produce of the ground. The possessor of heaven and earth, as though you and I are, are paying rent here. The air we breathe, the sunshine we enjoy. The crops that grow from the ground. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. You and I are hanging out on something owned by someone else. And a tithe is a means of honoring the possessor of heaven and earth. With regard to animal tithes, the law prescribed that every tenth beast that passed under the staff, i.e. under which the shepherd made them pass when he counted his flock, was to be sacred to the Lord, good and bad alike. Now when we come to the New Testament, how does the New Testament handle this subject? Do we ever come across a passage that informs us that no more are you to be tithing? Stop doing it. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a practice that is abhorrent to God. Don't do it. Don't embrace that. Don't do what Abraham did. Don't do what Jacob did. Don't do what was in the, the practice of the nation of Israel. Don't do that anymore. Do Do we press the play button and hear anything that sounds like that? If godly men who followed God and who listened to God's instruction had as a pattern and a means of honoring God with their finances that touched 10% of their income, I would hope that when one comes to the New Testament, he would either be very ready to honor what the New Testament says, unless the New Testament made it very clear, don't do that anymore. Now here's just a couple of examples of, of how the New Testament even gets close to this issue. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now stop for a second. Is Jesus against the tithe right here? I and mean, how do you read passages when you read them? What is, what is the emphasis? What is trying to be accomplished in this passage? It's trying to awaken these Pharisees to the fact that there are other things you are neglecting that are critical and important. The weightier issues of the law are being neglected by you. And does that mean, well, because he said that there's weightier issues, then this one that's not as weighty should be forsaken. You have to read the Bible in a strange way to conclude that. He goes on and says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, when he concludes the statement, he says both of these should be done. You guys are good about tithing, even the herbs that grow in your backyard garden. You're good about tithing that, but when it comes to loving your neighbor, you're clueless. You ought to be doing both. That's where he ends up with that passage. So he doesn't condemn the tithe. He includes and encourages both of them. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 13. Paul speaking of the way in which the gospel and the ministers of the gospel were to be supported. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, now he's borrowing an Old Testament picture here, in the temple service, they get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. These were the tithes that were being brought. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now what's interesting is the verbiage choice by Paul here. In the same way. He doesn't set up, and Paul is great at doing this, he doesn't may it never be. You Remember Paul's terminologies here? Paul doesn't set up a contrast here. He doesn't say that's the way they did it, but by contrast this is the way we do it now. He says in the same way the tide was a means of provision for ministry then it is a means of provision for ministry now in the same way. So when we come to the scriptures and we just press the play button i I call the tithe the the regular pattern of giving it's done on a regular basis It has regular dynamics to it anytime income from god touches our lives the tithe is a part of that exchange i believe that's the way the bible has set it up i believe there's such wisdom in this i can't possibly take all the time i'd love to take on The blessing of God's wisdom in this. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So we're we're to honor God both from wealth, but from the first fruits of our produce. We honor God. Soon as God brings into our lives, we turn back and we honor him. This is God's economy. This is what God has established. This is all throughout scripture. Nothing that undoes it anywhere, nothing that challenges it in such a way that we should feel like, well, we shouldn't do that any longer. This is what God has established for us to walk in. Now, when we get into the New Testament, and uh, really, this is not a New Testament thing only, but it it seems to be the thing that people sometimes want to swing out of the New Testament. Well, you know, it's not this 10% buddy that belongs to God. It's 100% that belongs to God, right? I mean, come on. Everything is God's. Okay, how many of you know that's not a New Testament idea? The Old Testament tells us the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. The Old Testament tells us that. How many of you know Abraham did walk around going, look, look, God, I appreciate the covenant. Uh, I'll keep the 90% of me and all that I have, and you get the 10%. And that's welcome to the Old Testament. How many of you know Abraham It all belonged to God? So much so that God could say, give me your son, your only son, Abraham. Give him to me. God had the right to declare that everything is mine. Everything you have is mine. So this is not a New Testament idea that invalidates the Old Testament principle of tithing to say, well, in the New Testament, grace is much bigger than that. God owns it all. God owned it all in the Old Testament. It's an interesting thought here, John Piper says. He says, but God is wise and knows us deeply. He knows that there is something wrong with the husband who answers his wife's complaint that he doesn't give her any time by saying, what do you mean? I don't give you my time. All my time is yours. I work all day long for you and the children. That is a very hollow ring to it if he doesn't give her any especially time. Giving her some evenings together and some dates does not deny that all his time is for her. It proves it. This is why God declares one day and seven especially God's. They are all his and making one special proves it. And this is the way it is with our money and God. Giving God a tenth of our income does not deny that all our money is God's. It proves that we believe it. Tithing is like a constant offering of the first fruits of the whole thing. The tenth is yours, O Lord, in a special way, because all of it is yours in an ordinary way. And we live very self-deceived to think that we have this noble principle that 100% of my life is God's but I can't seem to fork over 10% of it to him directly. It's, that's a very self-deceived issue. We, we should not feel very confident that our words carry much weight if we haven't been able to see them worked out in reality in a principle that we see clearly in Scripture. Well, that would be the tithing principle throughout Scripture. And then there's offerings throughout the Scriptures. Old Testament, there was the tabernacle. Exodus 35 verse 4 Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel This is the thing that the Lord has commanded Take from among you a contribution to the Lord whoever is of a generous heart Now this the language in this category is completely different than the tithe category The tithe never says whoever is of a generous heart It never asks for volunteers It only makes demands Bible language for the tithe is the tithe is the Lord's. The Bible language for offerings is whoever's heart moves him. Whoever would like to do this. It's the other category of giving. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. Then all the congregation of the Lord of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. This was a tabernacle. They took up an offering because they were going to build a tabernacle. Then in 1 Chronicles 29, you can look at that another time, they took up another offering to build a temple. Remember, this is the place in which we read a couple of weeks ago where David said, you know, my son Solomon is going to build a temple. And uh, he is young and inexperienced. And the temple must be magnificent for it is, excuse me, it is for the Lord. And so... David then goes on and begins to give out of his own wealth for years. David's been, he's king. He's been conquering land after land, people after people. He's got storehouses full of silver and gold. He begins to give all that into the building of the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 29, it says, Not just him, but all the leaders of the people. And then all the people begin to give, joyfully give towards the building of the temple. This is not the tithe. This is not a 10% thing. This is not every 10th animal. This is out of the wealth of someone's life. Someone says, I have such a passion for the glory of God on earth. I want this temple to be magnificent for the God that I love. I will give. It will cost me to give, and I gladly give to God. Remember, we looked last week, and I think this is a great example that tests our hearts as David, last week, stood and made intercession for the people of Israel. And he he was standing on the the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And the king has come. and, And Ornan's only too willing to say, here, king, you can have the land that this sits on. You can have the ox. You can have all the arrangements. Everything that's here, you take it all, king. So the king's got this great deal going on. He needs to make a sacrifice to God. He has the place to do it. He's got the oxen to do it. And it's all free. And David says, "No, I won't do that. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing." Why does he say that? I think, I think because when you give to God, you give in a way that honors Him. When you give what you value, this costs me something. This is not just somebody else gave me this, so then that, now I can give it. Well, then and if, and if I don't get it, I won't give it. How about giving what you count to be valuable? That honors God. That celebrates the value of God before my life. To take that which I consider to be valuable in my life and give it to him who I consider to be of more value than anything that I possess in my life. If you look in Second Corinthians, turn to Second Corinthians with me. You find the offering dynamic, not just in the Old Testament, but you find it in the New as well, that there would be various needs and situations that would arise. Here's an example of one in 2 Corinthians where a need is made known and the larger body of Christ through a network of apostolic leaders is being informed about a need for the believers that are in Jerusalem and an opportunity now is there for the people of God to respond financially into meeting that need. Now, can you... Go with me here for a moment. There are needy people in the kingdom of God. God is an infinite God. And a sovereign God. Does he really need to collect money from poor people in order to meet the needs of other poor people? I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know. Go sell a few. Couldn't God do it differently? Yeah, he could, but maybe he could. I don't know how to answer that question. All I can tell you is when I press the play button on the Bible and just let it say what it says, I find he doesn't. Well, doesn't God love those people? Doesn't he know that some of the people in the church would be chintzy and wouldn't give much and their need would be barely met rather than wonderfully met? Doesn't God know that? Well, sure, he knows that. And it doesn't change his economy. He still operates through his people giving same way in prayer, he looks for a man. In this category, he looks for a man. And it's significant that he does. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here's Paul making known to the Corinthians about these other churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul's been receiving offerings from poor people. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. This is not the tithe. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this whole section of Scripture has to do with uh, the churches responding to a need that's just arisen. There's a need. And beyond what we normally give, this need needs special attention from us to give our finances to. And this would be true in a variety of settings, and this one here provides for us a lot of learning opportunities here. And I, I put a little section in your outline just called Commentary. You just developed, if you just grabbed all the scriptures that said anything about giving, you, you, gets, you could learn nuances of giving by doing that. That's, that's called systematically studying the Bible. You find everything the Bible says about a particular topic, you bring all those passages into one group, and you form your theology out of that. That really is how you should form your theology in any subject. Well, here would be an example, and this is not an exhaustive list. But what are some insights we can gain from observing how these guys gave their offerings and what Paul said about it? Look in verse 6. First thing we're going to learn here, and I'll put this in your outline, is commitments or vows were made and were to be honored. You find believers in the New Testament making a vow. Paul, I'll give this. I'll give this to to the folks there that have a need. You got that from me. And so they're given their word that they'll do that. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all... And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it of what you have. So in other words, a year ago, the guys in Corinth said, sign us up. We're going to help out. We're going to give. And apparently there was some real specifics that were being said about what they were going to do and what their offering was going to be. Now look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Paul's been bragging on these folks, their eagerness to give and participate. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. See, these guys had made promises. They had pledged to give special offerings for a special need. And Paul is now about to come collect. It's it's about a year later. And Paul says, You know, when when I get there, I may have some of the Macedonians with me. I may have with me people that I've said, Wait until you see what Corinth is up to. The guys in Achaia, that whole region, they are, man, they are bending over backwards. To be a part of what God's doing in this mission. And they are giving sacrificial These are poor people, man. But they are. It's unbelievable. But then they got some folks giving this and this and this and this. And Paul now is saying, listen, when I get there, I don't want to show up and find out you've changed your mind. You're not quite sure you can do it. So I'm sending some guys ahead just to remind you about the pledges that you made. So that when we get there, we can all celebrate together in giving. So apparently in the New Testament... People made vows and pledges. They made vows and pledges in the Old Testament. That was not condemned. They were just encouraged and held responsible to complete what they had begun. You keep reading in this little section here in verse 6, you come across teachings on uh, sowing and reaping. Verse 6 says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That that scripture gets so lifted out of its context. This has got nothing to do with a tithe. Can you see the context here? What this has to do with is Paul trying to collect on a pledge. Because I don't want people giving reluctantly i don't want to come there as an exaction i don't want to have to come and remind you and say hey wait wait." you said you'd do this you need to honor god in doing it now i'm not trying to exact this from you i would want you to give as you intended in your heart to give back last year when you said you'd give and you had that intention give now and give joyfully god loves a cheerful giver that's the context for this verse this is this is not one of those passages that you say well you know I just had a bad attitude about giving the tithe. No, I just had a bad attitude. I just stopped. That's not what this passage is about. There are other passages that address that concept. We'll get to those in just a second. This is not one of them. But there's great blessing in here. And this giving, there's there's sowing and reaping. If you sow generously and abundantly, you're going to reap abundantly. It's a promise of God. To be stingy or to be reticent to give is to say, God, I don't know if I believe you. I don't know, if I give, God, I just think I'm going to be in need. I don't don't know that you're going to show up in me giving and being generous and touch my life. This whole passage is against that idea. God is able, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched. These are strong promises. And, And how do those promises become activated in these people's lives? It is by their giving that these promises are going to come into their lives. All this is about giving bountifully, about sowing and reaping, this whole promise package here. It's almost as though there's this this forest of stinginess around our lives. These trees and, and shrubbery and undergrowth. And when we give, it's almost like pushing a highway to clear out the way. Well, you know, stuff travels in both directions on that highway now. When I give away from my life, God uses that same highway to bring into my life His grace and His provision. That's what sowing and reaping does in the kingdom. I won't go through these other passages because I want to leave us a little time for this other thought. But you remember we studied through Malachi chapter 3. And we looked at God taking his people to task in that passage. He said, because you're robbing me. We were shocked. How are we robbing you in your tithes and offerings? Because you do not bring the full tithe. They were bringing parts of the tithe apparently, but not the full tithe. You are cursed with a curse. Every one of you. The tithe is the Lord's, Malachi says. See, the tithe is not this the the prerogative of the individual. Oh, my heart doesn't move me to give. That's an offering. Again, I'm just pressing the play button here, okay? I know I'm speaking a lot, but hopefully I'm just telling you, that's what the Bible says. I don't ever find the tithe being something that's talked about as whether or not we like it, whether or not My heart moves me. I find the offerings are that way. But I don't find the tithe is that way. The tithe is the Lord's. It is the Lord's. And so if it stays in my pocket, I'm a thief. You know, your income tax, if you don't deduct enough out of your deal there, you know, just because it doesn't get deducted and it stays in your pocket, keep it. See what the IRS calls you. They call you a thief when you do that, don't they? It's like, whoa, it didn't get deducted. I mean, it's mine. No, they don't see it as yours. (laughs) They see it as theirs. And they're coming after it. Well, you know, the Lord says, no, the tithe is mine. If you keep it, you're keeping what's mine. And, you know, you can raise the issue really here. I think the whole issue of of tithing or not tithing is a practice for, for most any of us. It does come down to a matter of priorities in our lives. Quite often, if, if we're not tithing, it may be because we have a, a too high a level of other priorities that demand our income from us. And, and that would be an issue. And This is why this economy of money is so important to God. Because money touches all of our life. It touches everything that we're about. It tells us what we can and can't afford, where we can and can't go, who we can and can't be around. It informs our lifestyle. It informs our energy levels. It informs our time use. So God would be very wise, and he is all over Scripture, to make sure he touches our money all the time. Because our money dictates our lives in many, many ways. Now, I put the passage in Haggai. Haggai, God takes the people to task, and he takes them to task by actually beginning to curse their lives. He withdraws his favor. And it's almost as though even the things that they have, they can't seem to, to squeeze any satisfaction out of it. You know, you you have this. You, you have coverings, but you're not warm. You know, you drink, but you're not satisfied. It's like God empties out the content of it. He drains it of all vitamins. There's nothing satisfying in life. They got stuff going on, but it's not satisfying anymore. And God says, you know why that is? Because when you bring it home, I blow it away. Huh, why are you doing that, God? Because... My house sits in ruins while you building lovely paneled homes for yourselves. See, what their financial situation gave away their priorities in their hearts. You see why money is so important to God? God says, you put me first. I'll meet every one of your needs. I'll be faithful to you. I'll bless you abundantly. But if you put something else first, it will show up in your finances. It's a priority issue with God. I wish we could take more time, just you know these two passages that I put in your outline there. They are warnings about money. They are warnings that, quite honestly, I believe, get solved by the tithe. I think the tithe rescues us from these issues. First Timothy six says, "Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. You sign on for graduate-level temptation when you sign on with a desire to be rich. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a dangerous, dangerous little verse right there. And it tells me that I I best keep money in a very safe biblical category in my life, lest my craving for what it supplies cause me to wander from the faith. That's a serious warning. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? See, there's an element of when money gets to be too big in my life, God always gets smaller. Always. And the one thing that the, that is so great, the tithe does this. The tithe, because because the tithe is a reflex mechanism for money comes in, I honor God. Money comes in, I honor God. Money comes in, I honor God. I always keep before me that God is the possessor of heaven and earth and that he is my provider. This ultimately comes from him and it's all his anyway. Every time I tithe, that's the response that I am making to God. It keeps money from ever being the source of my life. What a liberation. Oh, let me tell you, if, if you are in a place where you just can't seem to get to a tithe, you, you are. I hope you hear the chains around your feet when you walk. Because in your soul, you fear how bills will be paid, how life will ever get good or will stay good or what needs to be in it or whether this person will stay if the money changes. Ching, ching, ching the rattle of chains around our feet. Whereas God says, you know, if you'll honor me as the possessor of heaven and earth and the one as Jacob did, who honored me because I would provide for all that he needed, I'll set you free from those things. You get set free from money, you get set free from a lot. Because money is a means for us buying a whole lot of stuff that ends up enslaving us. Well, Before I read to us our, our commitment in the area of, of giving. I want to just touch for about five or ten minutes here on the, on the whole issue of commitment in the Christian life. We have the last two pages that you have there, the church covenant statement of beliefs and commitments, and they're all phrased under the idea of commitment to something, commitment to the authority of Scripture, commitment to the doctrine of salvation. Um, here's, here's a little phrase I think that highlights what we're after by forming a church covenant. Put it in your outline. It says, a church covenant is a cause we live for, a code we live by, and priorities that we pursue. That would be what this document represents for us. It is a cause that we live for, the glory of God being seen in our lives in this setting, the presence of God made known upon the earth. It is, it is a code we live by. How do we do things? How do we go about doing relationships, marriage? Raising children, handling money, spending time—it's a code we live by, and it is a priority that we pursue. These these issues that are in this document—they are priorities to us. They are not things we want to end up neglecting. Question: Should I sign a church covenant? I hope you guys are thinking some of this stuff through. It will be. This is really hopefully the the month's discussion here in covenant groups is, is about this. Should I should I sign a church covenant? I mean, I don't, I don't really know that I see a church covenant in the Bible. I see people signing documents to be part of a church in the Bible. Um, no, it's true. You don't. And so in that regard, this, this means of presenting this information would not be something that is biblically mandated. The Bible doesn't say every church should make people sign a, a document. Uh, but at the same time, There are many things to be gained by such a practice. I I think everybody here who's married, you you signed your marriage license, right? I hope you did. (laughs) Uh, That's not in the Bible either. Everybody here owns a house or ever taken out a car loan. We didn't mind signing a document stating our responsibilities to a financial institution. we we guarantee we'll pay this on these rates and these terms, et cetera, et cetera. We we commit to that. We commit to lesser things by signing to them. Should we not commit to the most important thing on the planet, the church, by really weighing our intentions in that category? See, I don't think, biblically, I don't have a problem with people declaring their intentions and making commitments in order to honor them. I don't think the Bible's against that. I think the Bible actually promotes it. The idea of church membership in general, this could be a subject all by itself, but but let me let me just see if I can just catch the edge of it here today. Uh, Does the Bible teach church membership? Now, It doesn't come out and use terms like the membership role of the church in Corinth. It doesn't use those terms. But what it does do, and you'll see this in the passage that's in your outline. I'm not going to go through it. It does clearly identify that there are those who are known to be in the church and those who are outside. It gives context. It says inside and outside. Who are you to judge those outside the church? But inside the church, you judge them. Well, how can you possibly judge them if you don't know who they are? If the church has no edges on it to where there's a definition of those who are in the church and those who are outside the church, you can't possibly do church discipline. Because, you know, you don't go to uh, the sheriff or the, uh, a government official and say, listen, um, you know, it's, it's me and the church elders from Lakeview. We have an issue of church discipline with you. You don't discipline people outside the church. You discipline those who are inside the church. So, in other words, those who are in the church must be known who are in the church. And even in this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 that we studied a few weeks ago about church discipline, they are actually those whose behavior does not conform to what it means to be the church. And, and they are to be then disciplined and removed. Well, again, we welcome the unbeliever here who is searching and confused and lost. But the believer who knows God and chooses to deny him and will not walk with him, that person you deal with differently. How do you even know who these people are if you don't have a membership dynamic in the church, So that, that dynamic in the church is there, even if it's not called a church role or those terminologies aren't used. What about the issue of commitment? Is it right for us to commit to something? We're committing to a bunch of stuff in this document. Is that right? I mean, isn't that froth with problems? I mean, can't that become a legalistic thing? Uh, well, Jesus called for commitments from people. This, again, is a, maybe perhaps our blurry theology makes us awkward with this. We have this idea that somehow the doctrine of grace means that God has, no longer has any expectations for us at all. It's a doctrine of grace. He doesn't expect anything from us. And, and we're certainly not required to put forth any effort. I mean, effort and activity would be equal to legalism, wouldn't it? But yet all throughout the Scripture... You find Paul admonishing. You find the Bible saying to believers, strive. So apparently grace does not negate human effort. It's just human effort for a different reason that grace would have a problem with. It's not human effort as a means to justify oneself. But that wouldn't mean that all form of human effort is out the window. Like the Bible is very big. We we end up with all these passages in Scripture because the the church is being called to be committed to a lifestyle, to be committed to priorities and values. Jesus, Luke chapter 9, Jesus made strong statements in the Bible. This would be an example that he would challenge individuals and call forth expectations and commitments. Luke 9, verse 23, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you would come after me, here's what you must do. That's a demand. He he places before people an issue of commitment. And, and And he puts teeth in it. Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And Jesus had this incredible ministry of thinning them out. (laughs) It's easy to gather a crowd. It's another thing to gather disciples. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Be committed. You started something, finish it. Count the cost beforehand so that you'll know when you get into this deal, and it's a challenge, and it's hard. You knew that going in. Jesus constantly challenged people. Jesus, I will follow you. I'll follow. I'm in. Oh, you are. Um, the Son of Man has, has he's got nowhere to lay his head. You still want to follow me? Jesus, I'll follow you. First permit me, to, I need to go take care of a few things back home. Just first permit me to go bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me. This is, this is a, a level of expectation that comes from God himself. And it is not wrong. As a matter of fact, it's, it's problematic if we, you and I are not committed to things. Christianity is about commitment. It is not salvation based on commitment. Now, can we all get rid of that idea real quick? It is not salvation based on commitment. But it is about commitment. And if it's not about commitment, we're going to end up with a church That's not about anything. It doesn't have any values in it. It does not live its, its life sacrificially and impacting in this world. Bill Hull, an excellent book he's written called Choose the Life, says, Too many have been taught that faith means to agree to a set of religious facts about Jesus rather than choosing to take up their cross daily and follow him. The shredding of justification from sanctification has done great damage to the authenticity and power of the gospel. It has created a church where faith equals intellectual assent and high commitment is the exception rather than the norm. Therefore, in the United States, the church continues to shrink in size, like lack relevancy because of moral duplicity, and preaches a gospel that produces more consumers of religious goods and services than disciples. That's a terrible indictment. George Barna, he can, he can be a lightning rod sometimes. Just Christianity has no cost in America. We've made it way too easy to be born again. I think it's way too easy just to wear the label. Perhaps much easier than Jesus intended. When do we get to the point at which we accept smaller numbers of intensely devoted people rather than feverishly investing in filling auditoriums and stadiums with massive numbers of lukewarm Christians that Jesus promised to spew from his mouth? Wow, what do you really think, George? (laughs) Well <laughs> what am I saying? I, I, if I think about signing this document, what am I saying? I read through this, and I hope you will. hope you'll sit with your family and consider what it says. You know, it is a rough draft. We're still working through some of the language of it. Um, it is our attempt at putting biblical values into a concise document. It is not, it's not a legal draft. It is not intended to... Uh, be theologically foolproof. It is it is really it is a statement of our intentions. That's the best label I can put on it. And by signing it or agreeing to it, I am declaring my intentions. Let me tell you what I'm not declaring. I'm not guaranteeing you that I will be perfect in fulfilling it. That is not what my signature says. My signature says I have every intention in making these things the priorities in my life. That is my intention. Not all of us are in exactly the same place as we walk in being part of the church. We're all part of the church. We're not all in exactly the same place. Different maturity levels, different experiences. We come in with different baggage. We're undoing different things in our lives. We're acquiring truths from God, some of them easy, some of them hard for other people some of the ones that they have are easy and and you consider them hard there's variety here i think a a great illustration of of what it means to sign this document is sort of like uh signing to run in the crescent city classic you know the crescent city classic it's got all kinds of different people you know it gets a lot of news headlines and uh you've got the the lean Nigerians who are always the first to cross the finish line. Right? you got those guys who are in the race. you got the, uh, the fitness buffs from the suburbs that are in the race. You know, they're a little chunkier, uh, tend to be white. But they're running the race, you know, and they're the, guys who, they're the guys I make fun of. They're the guys who get up at ungodly hours and run for no reason. But there they are in the race. They've been wasting their lives, and now they have an official place to go waste it. But they're in the race they're in the race they're wearing a little tag congratulations uh, you got you got the overweight first timers you know they're, they're the ones with with shirts that look like tents and they've headbands on and uh they're in the race you have the i don't know who was uh you have young people in the race last year sophie ran in the race she was 12 i think taylor masson she the two of them trained together and ran together uh in the race and i think that one of them Told me that I don't know if it was a 70-something, 80-something-year-old person that was in the race. You have people in wheelchairs that are in the race. Right? They are not all going to run the race exactly the same way. Now, are they? They're not going to finish at the same time. You're not going to find them along the way looking exactly the same. You know, the Nigerian. You know, I don't even know if he breathes heavy when he gets to the finish line. You get some people who ran for three blocks and they got to walk now for a while. <laughs> But the one thing they all share in common is they're committed to the race. And if you're going to be committed to the race, and there's elements in this document that are just like this, you're going to be committed to the starting line. The race starts at a particular spot. Now, being committed to be in the body of Christ means I, I commit to the starting spot, I commit to salvation, I commit to, to beginning the race where the Bible says I need to begin the race at. I'm committed to the course. You know, you don't get in the starting block. You ever seen the starting line for the Crescent City Classic? <laughs> I mean, it is a mass of people for blocks. And they're all standing there. Now, when the gun goes off, they don't just scatter in every different direction. It's like some of them are into the river, some of them are going down in the French Quarter, some of them run back towards uh, Bywater. That, that's not what happens. They all aim in the same direction and commit themselves to the same course that runs through the city toward the same finish line. Some of them, as we said, run the whole way through. Some of them, along the way, they they need to stop. They're out of breath. They're out of shape. But even in that, there's a commitment to to keep moving. Keep moving. You're not running at that pace. Keep moving. Be committed to keep moving. And I think that picture's got a lot of what, what we're looking for in this document is about. We're committed to run the race. We're committed to it. I will be running this race. The Bible calls us and uses those terminologies of running the race that's set before us. I'm going to be running this race for the rest of my life. I'm committed to that. These are some of the components of running the race. I'm committed to movement. I'm going to keep moving. Well, what if you fall down? Well, then you repent and you get up and you keep moving. It's not a commitment that, well, I'll never fall down. I'll never fall down. If I sign this, I don't know that I can sign this document because I, I might fall. Uh, Oh, there's no might. (laughs) You will fall. But let me tell you this. If you're not committed to repenting and keeping going, then don't sign the document. If your version of Christianity ever has with it an off-ramp to following Christ, then you're not committed to him. If you get discouraged, you get beat up, you slow down, all of us face that. Every one of us face that. There are some here who just recently are saved. Just within the last few months have just come into the kingdom of God. Running spiritually? That's a, a clueless thing. Some who say, you know, I, I don't know that I can read the Bible at the, you know, at the, the pace of Denny Meyer. I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if I can keep up with that. Are you committed to moving? Are you committed to reading? From where you are, one day you'll read it at that level and you'll go beyond that. But are you committed and intentional about being in the race? Are you committed to continuing? No matter what, I'm committed to continuing. The Apostle Paul, some 20-something years later, is still in Philippians saying, I press on. Not that I've arrived. I'm not at the finish line yet. But I press on. I'm still going. I'm in the race. And that's what we're saying. Am I committed to the course? Am I committed to keep moving? Am I committed to these principles? I'm going to live by them. I'm going to grow in them. I'm going to embrace them and stay with it. Your outline says this is not a commitment to being perfect. It is a commitment to being intentional about running the race set before me. Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded, right? Line the streets with cheering Faithful believers, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Are you, are you committed to doing that? And nobody straks, straps their 60-gallon igloo on their back and runs the Crescent City Classic. You're going to have to shed something here to run. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. What I hope you will do this week as you meet in covenant groups, I hope you'll take those last two pages and you'll look through those issues of commitment And you look through, again, the the biblical foundations as to why we are convinced that these things are simply biblical and therefore we are committed to them, which is the, the format of the of the entire thing is first to come in agreement. Yes, I believe the Bible says that. And then the next thing is to respond. As a result of believing that I commit, I'm intentional in these categories and to think through these different avenues. And you may find some of them seem more easy to you than others. Some of them are. A challenge to you uniquely. Some of you may question, I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know that I want to do that. And be careful when you find the ones that you're saying, I don't know that I want to do that, that you're not eisegetically coming to the Bible. I like life this way. I don't like the way that sounds. We, we, have, we have done our best, uh, well, probably could do better, to create a document that simply reflects biblical values. And tries to stir an an opportunity for application. Different pastors have looked at it. Uh, We're still tweaking some elements in it, trying to create the language that will serve us the best. We've asked the extended leadership team to read through it. You're welcome to do that as well and share with your covenant group leader. You may have some insights that would be very helpful for us. But what we want to seek to do is to be intentional. Let's run the race, let's run it together. Let's run it until the last breath is in us. Let's be mutual encouragers. Let's sign on to the same program. Let's read from the same script. We're all and I think every believer here would say, we're all headed for the same finish line, aren't we? And I want to see you at the finish line. And the way that we're going to do that is to live out the values that God has given us as a community, to live them together, to borrow from the momentum that is here in our midst, When that pack starts moving down the street, they start picking up the pace, you find yourself picking up the pace. You find people quitting all around you, you find it more tempting for you to quit as well. This is a group thing. God intended it to be that way. We need to be committed and intentional about finishing together. Let's stand up together. Just quiet our hearts for just a moment. Allow the Lord to be personal with you and where you are. You find yourself this morning perhaps listening to some of these issues of commitment and living and Finances and life. And and you're thinking, well, yeah. I would consider myself a Christian. I would wear that label. And you've heard some strong things, hopefully not just from me, but from the Scriptures. Strong things. Are you willing to abandon your life? In order to follow Christ. If you want to be my disciple. Then you have to deny yourself. Say no. To you. To your goals, aspirations. And whatever it is that you have. By your own methods determined would be best for your life. Lay those things down. Take up a cross. Which biblically means really be willing to embrace the death of your own life. And follow Christ. If you're here this morning, and, and those elements are things you, you're not quite sure you've ever thought it through that way. If someone asked you, Are you a Christian? you would say, Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But if somebody asked you, Have you forsaken your whole life in order to follow Jesus Christ? you might have to pause for a moment and reconsider. If I asked you, not are you a Christian, but are you following Christ today in your life wholeheartedly and with full surrender to Him? That's a different question. But biblically, it's the same question. And this morning, if you would like to embrace this God whose love for you is so radical that the first thing He asks for you to do is to entrust your whole life to Him. Basically, He doesn't trust you. He wants you to trust Him, but He doesn't trust you. And His concern would be, if you gave Him a portion of your life, the part that you kept would be enough to wreck the rest of your life. And He loves you too much to let you be in charge of even just a little piece of it, lest it end up being to your demise. This God loves you gave his own son for you and says, you can have my life if you'll give me yours. If you're not sure you've done that right now, you can, you can pray right now. And you can speak to God right in this moment. You can say, God, you do this in your own heart if you desire to do it. God, today I, I want you in my life. I want you to have my life. I trust my life, my future, my goals, everything that I know about myself, everything I want from this life. I I take it all and I entrust it to you this morning. I turn away from trying to do it my own way with my own ideas. And I open my heart up this morning to you to your truth, your word. And I open my life to your spirit. I welcome you here. I welcome you into my heart. Lead me. I want to follow you. And today, I do choose. I will follow you. God, I want to be in the race. I want to finish. I want to cross the line and receive your embrace and your reward and your great love. Today, God, I surrender my life to you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you've done that this morning and that was the first time you've prayed a prayer like that, I would invite you, maybe if you've been invited by somebody, you know somebody you're close with here, make it an intention of yours just to express that to them. Let them know you did that. It will help you. It will help them to relate to you and care for you as well. If you're not real close to anybody here and you want to just come find me after the service or Matt or find somebody you recognize and say, I I prayed that prayer. We we could give you a Bible, maybe give you some literature that would help you get started in your own pursuit of God. for the rest of us, our last installment of commitments, this document could go on and on and on and on. Our last commitment is to God's economy of giving. Does I agree that God calls me to support the mission of the church? from the finances He has provided in my life. I therefore commit to follow the biblical pattern of giving, which includes, one, giving on a regular basis as the Lord provides for me, and two, being open to the Holy Spirit's leading for me to consider additional sacrifice, sacrificial giving. Let's pray through these as families, as individuals, covenant groups discussing them. And uh, we're not going to sign this next week. We're actually going to find somewhere in the next few weeks where we can make this something we'll do together. Make it a meaningful moment for us together uh, to commit ourselves before God to one another for his glory. Amen. Have a great, awesome week, you guys.